This review will be divided into two clearly marked sections. Those, of course, being spoiler-free and spoilers. The spoiler-free section should hopefully provide those interested in hearing about the novel and possibly those deciding whether or not to buy the novel with an understanding about its quality of writing, story, characterization, as well as general strengths and weaknesses. Once we enter spoilers, which will be marked clearly at that time, I will be able to offer more specific details and critique by using examples and commentary drawn from the actual details of the book. Let's begin, however, with the spoiler-free section. Now, Greg Weissman's novel, War of the Spark, is the story of the Gatewatch's final battle with Nicol Bolas on the Plain of Ravnica. Quite literally, the entirety of the novel is confined to this final battle. It begins when both the Immortal Sun and Planeswalker Beacon are activated, and it ends when Nicol Bolas is defeated, which, as far as I can tell, is within the time frame of less than one day. For fans looking for gaps to be filled in on details that were not conveyed in the flavor text of War of the Spark magic cards, what was the lead up to the war like, Bolas's infiltration of the guilds, what caused some of his own Planeswalker agents to turn on him, what was the nature of Ral Zarek working as a double agent, for example, where did Bolas get the Elder spell from, what even were his motivations and plans beyond simply using it to become a god again, how did Niv-Mizzet die, and so on and so forth. The book does not explore any of these things. It is one thing and one thing only. The attack has begun, the Gatewatch must stop Bolas, and, I hope this doesn't count as a spoiler, the Gatewatch stops Bolas. It is the climactic final fight scene in novel form with zero lead-up or even resolution. This was the most startling thing to me. I kept feeling like I missed a novel. Did I miss a novel somewhere? Despite the enormous amount of backstory in this novel, which I will touch on in just a moment, I felt as though the most important parts in the narrative had been completely omitted. The typical structure of a narrative looks like this. Now, obviously, many stories do not follow this pattern. Some of the best will, in fact, subvert it. But that is not the case here. Typically, for fantasy adventure tales, we do want to see this pattern. You begin by orienting your reader to the main characters, or character, their setting and circumstances. This is known as the introduction. Then you have a progression of events which occur. This happens, and then this happens, and then that happens after that. These are known as plot points, and each plot point usually is a bit more important than the last, which is what causes both progression and what we call rising tension. This builds, of course, to the highest and most important plot point, which is known as the climax. Afterwards, there is a resolution where our character or characters get to experience the change in their lives that has come after the climax and potentially look forward towards what is coming next for them. But War of the Spark is literally just the climax, with only a rushed summary of before. We hear one line, literally one line, about some of the items I listed previously. Simple summation, and then focus on the battle. Jace and the Gatewatch are on one end of a plaza, Bolas the other. They are trying to get to him. Eventually, 
They do. War of the Spark also struggles from the get-go with a very common issue for genre fiction that is part of an ongoing series. Do you write this novel with brand new readers in mind, or from the perspective that your reader is up to date on the story so far? Some works will make a clear choice between the two, while others will waffle back and forth uncommitted. The latter, I'm afraid, is the strategy Weissman's novel employs. Jace had already made it abundantly clear that he thought Gideon was on a fool's errand. Uh, by the way, I am going to read a few short passages throughout the non-spoiler section. These are not passages that spoil any plot details, anything that affects the novel, but I guess I should just give you a fair warning that, yes, there will be a few very brief passages that I use here and throughout the non-spoiler section to illustrate some of my points, such as this one. Jace had already made it abundantly clear that he thought Gideon was on a fool's errand, that Liliana had never had any intention of joining them in their fight against Bolas, that she had exploited the Gatewatch as a tool to slay her own personal demons, literally, and that now that those demons were dead and gone, her use for her so-called friends had likewise come to an end. But Gids had refused to believe that, and Chandra had agreed with him, as had Jaya, Karn, and Teferi. All five of them felt strongly that Liliana, despite her own well-manicured facade of selfishness, was indeed their true friend and ally, that she cared about them, even Jace. Maybe especially Jace. They had slept together, right? It's all a summary of backstory. The book leans heavily, too heavily, into that summary of backstory. This is consistent throughout almost the entire work. As each character takes center stage, the reader is bombarded with backstory, not just of who the character is and how they happened to get there, but also of much of the basic facts of Magic the Gathering multiverse. So get ready for a heavy summarization of what is planeswalking, what is Ravnica, what are the guilds, what is each guild, who is in charge of each guild, what their personalities are like, what was the mending, what happened on Ixalan, what happened on Dominic area, what happened on Amonkhet, what happened on Zendikar, and on and on and on. Meanwhile, all that is exactly happening within the novel in the present tense is simply trying to get to Bolas and stop him. Jace's face showed nothing, but he was internally furious with himself. This is all my fault. He and Vraska had been allies, more than allies, and they had formed a plan. She had begun doing Bolas's dirty work before knowing who or what he truly was. When she learned the truth, she became just as determined as Jace to stop the dragon, but she'd still have to face Bolas, face his telepathic ability. So, at her request to offer her temporary protection, Jace had erased from her mind all knowledge of their alliance, of their feelings for each other, of Jace Bellerin entirely, and he had erased all knowledge of Bolas's true nature. She was to return to Ravnica while Jace gathered up the Gatewatch and formed a plan. Then Jace would have come to Ravnica, located Vraska, and triggered her true memories. And together they would have brought the dragon down. But gathering the Gatewatch had taken more time than he had anticipated, mostly due to Liliana, who had dragged most of them off to join her personal quest on Dominaria. But Jace was also late returning. He had planeswalked to Zendikar to track down Nyssa Ravine, a founding member of the Gatewatch. It had taken weeks to find her 
her in days to realize he could not convince her to rejoin the cause. In the interim, anything Vraska did in service to Bolas was not her fault. And on and on and on. All of this is very broad, offering not details, but just a superficial rambling, as if to hurry the reader along to the present tense. But as this story is packed full of more characters than even Marvel's auspicious Infinity War, that is not a task that is ever truly over. I couldn't help but think of Infinity War while reading this novel, and how that film chose to open immediately in the present and without regard as to whether or not the audience knew or did not know who these characters are and what they've done before. I think that strategy would have worked much better here, as still being given a literal info dump of backstory two-thirds of the way through the novel caused it to feel sluggish, tedious, and unfocused. But the narrative of this novel is not only at a low reading level, but very limited in detail, be it physical detail or description or emotional. We hear only brief, extremely superficial details about what characters are thinking, where they are coming from. As such, motivations are paper thin. There was a dragon that needed slaying, an elder dragon, and Gideon had acquired a weapon. Blackblade, that had once slain another elder dragon. Get close and stab. These days, that sounded like Gideon's kind of plan. Based only on the words on the page, it is as though every character's actions are simply for their own survival, with no more depth and complexity offered. Likewise, descriptions are just as limited. We are given little on the way things and characters look and appear. These things are brief and glossed over. In one scene, Vraska returns from Ixalan. You look like a pirate, says Ral, and at no point are we told what Vraska is actually wearing or how she looks. We have one line of dialogue that says, you look like a pirate, but we're not actually told what she's wearing and what she looks like. This is indicative of the descriptive levels throughout the novel. Most chapters, in fact, are only one to one and a half pages long, and that is the thrust of the narrative, which is essentially not much of a thrust at all. I definitely felt going through the novel that characters like Jace, Gideon, and Liliana did not act like themselves or even versions of themselves. Some of the lines from Gideon early on made me feel as though I was reading Lieutenant Worf and not Gideon Jura. But more so than disappointing characterization, for a 300-page novel with literally, sorry, 362 page novel, with literally dozens upon dozens of characters, most of these characters in all of those pages are given only a superficial pass-by. One example of this is Domri Raid, and again, I don't feel I'm in spoiler territory here since his death and de-sparking was depicted on a magic card. Domri gets one line in the entirety of the novel, and here it is. Hey, dragon, I am Domri Raid, champion and master of all the Gruul clans. You and I should be talking, mate. How about I swear allegiance to you and all yours? We'll burn Ravnica to the ground. And then an Eternal grabs Domri and kills him. That's it. Sorry, Domri Raid fans, if you are hoping for him to have even a supporting or auxiliary role, that is literally the entirety of his presence in this 362-page novel. 
Myself, a fan of characters like Teferi and Karn, was disappointed that they had, in a way, even less time on the page, as they were only described as being present, participating in the battle, and offering affirmative or negative responses such as, good idea, etc., etc. So you won't see Teferi, mischievous yet brilliant time mage from the Talarian Academy, here. He is described mostly as being in the background, slowing down time during battle. Teferi was slowing down time. Teferi was slowing down time. Karn, too, has next to no lines, and those the Silver Golem does have are not any sagely words of wisdom or care, but simple affirmative and negatives. That is how the characters exist throughout the book. This passage that I'm about to read is highly indicative of all passages that include them. Teferi's strain to slow time around the planar bridge, to slow the advance of the Eternals, and to slow their reaction times. Jace created illusions as close to the portal as possible to send the Eternals against one another and create a traffic jam right in front of its gaping maw. Karn was ideally positioned to crush as many Lazotep-covered skulls as he could manage from among the Eternals that passed through the spells of Teferi. And Jace. Among the three of them, it was an effective strategy. That's right, Karn, Silver Golem of Peace, who has sworn never to take a life, serves the role of crushing skulls. Ugin, the spirit dragon, uses such phrases as quote unquote, pot, meat, kettle, when speaking to Nicol Bolas, and you must have really ticked him off. Yeah, that sounds like Ugin. Oh, no, wait, it doesn't. As the planeswalkers from the set roll onto and quickly off the page, it is little more than name dropping. And apparently, everybody already knows everybody else. I was shocked at the great galactic coincidence of Narset, Dak Faden, Tamio, Angroth, Sahili, and on and on, literally all knowing each other and being known by one another, by the full gatewatch, by every planeswalker, as though every planeswalker in the entirety of the multiverse, every planeswalker that the audience knows anyway, all 36 of them, all are already familiar with each other. Well, almost all 36 of them, Tybalt never makes an appearance. The Wanderer, a brand new planeswalker never before seen, whose identity and personality gripped the community with intrigue when she was first introduced, and excitement. She's mentioned in passing about two-thirds of the way through the novel, and then again, strangely, our main character's already are aware of her, give her a nod of the head, and she's gone. Recognize and know her, and then she's given nothing but a passing mention of her fighting off the enemy, less of a scene and presence than even Domri gets. Before we resume with long and tired attempts for Jace to somehow reach Nicol Bolas. And thus, 90%, or perhaps more than 90% of this novel, is just a description of Jace and friends fighting their way to Nicol Bolas, with next to no detail or explanation given to character or motivation. All the depths and complexity of Ravnica, all the brilliance of Nicol Bolas and his centuries of planning, nearly every planeswalker we've ever seen, and the plot is simply... Jason friends are on one side of a plaza, Nicol Bolas is on the other. 
they must fight their way to him. As I approach spoilers now, I will offer this description to all who do not wish this book to be spoiled, but do wish to grasp just what this book is like. It is as if the final battle from Justice League, the, the movie, was given its own novelization. Not the movie Justice League, but literally the final battle. Poorly written in shallow prose and extended to 362 pages. That is the best way I can convey this novel without spoilers. Now let's get to spoilers. So, I'll be discussing spoilers here, but I'm not looking to summarize everything. This is just a review, so no need to ask, oh, why didn't you mention such and such? Because that wasn't something I was talking about in my review. Let's start with the character of Teo the Shield Mage, a brand new planeswalker whose first planeswalk is to Ravnica during the start of the battle. Teo's character is a very weird inclusion in this novel. Perhaps he is meant to work as an audience surrogate. Again, going back to my point about the novel worrying that someone unfamiliar with the lore can't follow along. But Teo is essentially, and I'm trying to be fair here, but useless throughout the story and never goes beyond bland, generic character who knows nothing about and has no stakes in anything that's going on around him. He doesn't really save the day. He has no connection to anyone else. He is just caught up in the middle of things. Yet he's given some of the most time and development of any character in this novel other than Jace, Gideon, Kaya, perhaps Ral, they were kind of the primary characters, but Teo is standing alongside them. I think Teo has more text devoted to him, in fact, than Liliana gets. He absolutely should not have been in this novel, especially given how little other characters get, the characters that we've known and grown to follow into this story. I mean, you don't do Avengers Endgame and suddenly introduce a Marvel hero we've literally never seen previously and then give them a leading role in the film. I don't know, I haven't seen it Game. maybe they do that. That, but I doubt it. I thought one of the most positive things in this novel, yes, there were a few, was Dak Faden. Dak not only got a significant amount of page time, he also almost had an arc. He certainly had more personality and was more likable than most of the other tissue-thin characters that we are presented with. Dak gets a lot of time, and his role in the battle is actually very interesting. He accidentally arrives on Ravnica, being drawn by the Planeswalker Beacon. He was in the middle of a heist when he got called there. He doesn't want to be there. Also, I believe they mentioned that they're looking for him on Ravnica for previous thefts, but he can't leave because of the immortal sun, and he gets swept up in events. He has the choice to simply hide, to wait things out, but he has flashbacks to his own origin in war and battle and atrocity, and he does not want to let these things happen again. So he participates in part for his own survival, but in part to be bigger and better than he was, and this is all very interesting. He has actual motivation, and he has an actual character. He ends up on Amonkhet, where he had the job of shutting down the planner portal, and he, along with Obnixilus, succeeds. Obnixilus, of course, has no motivation to go back to Ravnica and disappears immediately. And here we have one of the most interesting parts in the story, because while the planner portal has been shut down, the immortal sun has not. So if Dak goes back to Ravnica, he can't leave it again. 
He's on Amoncat. He's free to go anywhere in the multiverse to escape and live. And he makes the decision to go back and fight. And I really like that. Now, we know that Dak dies. We saw him dying in the trailer. He didn't have a single card devoted to him in the magic set. The nature of his death is where the author drops the ball because it comes out of nowhere. He doesn't stay and die to, say, eventually shut down the immortal sun. He simply is caught up in another generic battle scene and happens to have the best gotten of him by a immortal. Uh, and this ends up being a little disappointing. It would have been nice if he stood up and sacrificed himself for an actual cause instead of randomly just being destroyed, but at least he had what is the approximation of an arc, and I thought that was one of the best parts of the novel. And it's a shame that other characters weren't at least given that much detail. So little is thought about in regards to the characters. It's like rushing through a checklist. I mentioned earlier the line about Karn crushing skulls, about humorless, non-present Teferi. We're told at one point that Kaya is literally the true guild leader of the Orzov. At the end, she's proven that she is the true and rightful guild leader of the Orzov, Kaya. But she spends the novel talking about how repugnant she finds the guild, how much she dislikes its members, its very philosophy. She loathes the Orzov and speaks ill of them. But then, for no real reason, the guild says, ah, she is the true guild leader for them in terms of her connection and character. This does not add up. At the end of the story, Dovin Bon is blinded by Chandra, and it is Vraska, the Gorgon, who assassinates via her stone gaze, who is tasked with bringing him to justice. Again, Dovin is blind, and a character whose strength lies in what she does with her gaze, what she does when people see her, is the one tasked with bringing her back. But again, don't worry, it's literally one sentence towards the end of the novel, again, just rushed through without thought and care. Within the context of the novel, Gideon's ultimate sacrifice for Liliana is without connection. Jace is actually the one who spends most of the time throughout this novel thinking about and pining over Liliana, and she about him, and both come to the realization that they love each other. Of Vraska, Jace just thinks to himself, we were maybe more than friends once, and that is all. And of Jace, Vraska thinks, and it's again, just about word for word, we were maybe more than friends once. And the rest of the relationship from Ixalan is completely ignored and not pursued. You know, there's a card from back when the Gatewatch was formed in Oath of the Gatewatch. That card is called Call the Gatewatch. There are just two sentences of flavor text on there, words spoken by Jace. They are, I've heard it said that a planeswalker is someone who can always run from danger. But Gideon's right. We're also the ones who can choose to stay. I find there to be more depth and complexity in those two sentences of flavor text on a single card than within the entirety of this novel. That concept, and I have never been a big fan of the Gatewatch, but 
That concept about their reason and purpose, I feel, is quite powerful. That the only ones who can run away are also the only ones who really can choose to stay. Some of that goes back to what I liked the little inklings of in Dak Faden's story when he chose to return. But ultimately, when the plot of this novel is presented as, we can't escape, our only means of survival is to stop Nicol Bolas, and there are undertones, certainly, of, we need to do this to help Ravnica and the people of Ravnica, but ever present throughout it is just the danger of, there's no way out, there's no way out. It completely subverts what the Gatewatch was about. I would have liked to have seen, perhaps, the Immortal Sun deactivated very early, and many, if not most, of the other Planeswalkers choosing to run away. Perhaps the original Gatewatch, or those currently in the Gatewatch, are the ones who say, no, we can leave now, but the job's not done. The threat is still here. The innocents are still in jeopardy, and we, the Gatewatch, are going to do what we were formed to do, stay and keep watch, choose to stay and fight. And I think that would have been a lot more powerful than the simple survival imperative that is present throughout this novel. So my overall report card for War of the Spark by Greg Weissman is obviously not favorable. The narrative is rushed and simplistic. There is a lack of description throughout, both of character motivation and simply of visuals. There's an utter lack of characterization. Motives and actions do not always make sense. There is an overabundance of backstory and summary. Highly superficial, and yet in the present there is not much in the way of plot points, simply the ongoing need to somehow reach Nicol Bolas and fighting our way there. I would grade this novel at a D. Highly disappointing. If you are looking for Magic the Gathering lore that is extremely well-written, engaging, descriptive, full of fantastic characterization, I cannot recommend what was essentially the end of Magic's story, an unfortunate thing to end, the Ixalan chapters of the Magic story, which I will link in this video's description. I think it is, quite frankly, some of the finest writing that Magic the Gathering ever saw, and definitely far superior to what we have here. And if you're more interested in an audio experience, you can check out my own videos, which were able to feature work done by MTG Pro Tutor, offering a professionally produced acting of the Shadows of Innistrad storyline. Those videos here and here are like lore you've probably never experienced before. I think it's probably the closest thing we'll ever come to a Magic the Gathering movie, only it's audio only. I encourage you, implore you to check that out. Check out the links that I'm including in this video's description, because Magic the Gathering lore need not be shallow and superficial. It can actually be quite complex and quite engaging. But that, of course, is just my review, a harsh one, I suppose, but my own nonetheless. I'd love to hear from you if you have read this novel. What did you think? Did you like it or dislike it? Do you agree or disagree with me? Remember, disagreement and debate is not only okay, it is welcome and encouraged. There is no correct answer to whether or not you enjoyed a work of literature such as this, other than your own. 
But the part that I'm more interested in, beyond simply whether you enjoyed it or did not enjoy it, is why. So let me know in the comments below what you think of War of the Spark. And this program was made possible thanks to a sponsorship from Card Kingdom, as well as the Patreon support of viewers such as you. So thank you.